Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. This past September, Iran's morality police arrested a 22-year-old Iranian woman, Masha Amini, for violating rules regarding proper wearing of the hijab, a hair covering required of all women in, in public in Iran. A few days later, her family was informed that Ms. Amini had died in police custody, supposedly from a heart attack, although her family claimed she had died from blows to her head. In the weeks since, protests have erupted across Iran, protesting Ms. Amini's death, but also challenging the legitimacy of the Iranian regime. The protests have involved thousands of women, including high school and university students, and have expanded to include oil industrial workers, medical workers, and lawyers. The Iranian regime seems to be under pressure greater than it has experienced since it came to power in 1979. To help us understand what is going on in Iran and its wider significance for the Middle East and international politics generally, I have invited the Providence College Political Science Department's Middle East expert, Professor Gazim Zinzerchi, to enlighten us on what's happening in Iran. Professor Zinzerchi, welcome again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Hello, nice to be here, Bill. Okay, to start off, why don't you give us some a little background on the death of um, Masha Amini? Uh, exactly what happened and uh, what, what do we know about that incident? And how did that uh, bring about the protests that we've been reading about in the newspapers? Of course. So Masa Amini, it wasn't that she wasn't wearing a headscarf, but she wasn't wearing it properly. Uh, that could mean a variety of things. Maybe the headscarf had fallen off her head or maybe she was showing hair, too much hair any other kind of interpretation and the morality police can in these instances uh, put a woman or a man uh, in a van and take them into custody. And this is what happened in the case of Masa Amini. We don't really know what happened afterwards uh, from the perspective of the morality police. Uh, she, they argued that she already had a heart condition and they didn't actually treat her in any negative way at the police station, but that she just fell down and was sick. They even distributed a heavily edited video of her in the police station, showing her just falling down and then argued that, see, we didn't do anything, she was already sick and it's not our fault. Um, that was probably uh, what got people really upset in addition to the distribution of her beaten up face, uh, the photo of her beaten up face in the hospital. It was a very strong and upsetting image for people in Iran and elsewhere. And from the beginning, the morality police didn't say we're sorry or we made a mistake, did not back down, just claimed that there's nothing that we did that could be construed as problematic. And they didn't let her parents, her dad insisted on seeing the body, um, to see the body before the funeral. And the family mobilized alongside other activists to uh, stop, put an end to these kinds of oppressive practices in Iran. Right. How common is this kind of an incident in Iran? How, how pervasive are the, mil the morality police? How often would they stop 
say, a young woman like this off the street? From what I understand uh, and what I've read so far, it is actually, this is not very common to take someone into a van and into the police station. Uh, it's usually something that the morality police might start doing, especially if the government says we need to crack down on morality or is pushing people to um, to be more ethical, Islamic, whatever you call it. I mean, there can be a variety of interactions between Iranian women and men and the morality police. This can include the morality police telling someone walking into a coffee shop, you know, sister, please pull up your headscarf. And she might say, what is it to you? Um, this is what I have read about. and Or it could be even like a chaperone. So like many high school students have to have a morality police if they go to a mosque or to another place like a a visit to a cultural center and they might just be there to make sure the kids are okay. Um, so this is an extreme case, but I don't mean to downplay that it happens often enough, but the torture or the beating, uh, however we put it, seems like a more recent development, especially the sharing of such a photograph in social media shows that there are some cracks in the system in Iran. Are there political developments behind that? Uh, there was an election not long ago. A new president mm -hmm. was elected. Could that be connected in any way to maybe a, a, a crackdown uh, that, that, that precipitated this? From what I understand, since the election of the new president, Ibrahim Raisi, in 2021, the government has increased the role of the morality police and made it uh, more well known that any kind of transgression will not be accepted or overlooked. Um, and I think that that is probably felt through segments of Iranian society because it really depends on who is in power in Iran. If there is a reformist or someone that is more moderate, the morality police can be a little less intrusive in public life. But I think for the last year or so, it seems to me that the morality police has been a lot more involved in the daily interactions of Iranians. And that's probably part of the um, response to Masa Amini's death. But I also think that the just the image of her uh, laying in the hospital bed uh, for just not having her headscarf pulled up in a way that was acceptable, has angered even the most conservative Iranians, not just those who are questioning the regime. Yeah, so this, there had been a period, you know, prior to the election of the new government where perhaps things were a little more relaxed. Mm -hmm. And then this now, this, this uh, more activity by the morality police is a change that, that people are not happy with. And then this incident really kind of triggered uh, a reaction. What 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 it's the importance of the hijab here as a symbol as a as a part of that? I know and I've seen in the press that in a lot of the demonstrations women are pulling off their hijabs or even doing things like cutting their hair. What what's the significance of all of that? I mean, there is a lot to say here, of course. So for many Muslim women, the headscarf is something that is uh, worn voluntarily. 
Uh, sometimes in the West, there's a misperception that, you know, Muslim women are only wearing the headscarf because they are forced to do so. Um, on the other hand, in places like Iran, uh, there are, it's a country where everybody is expected, or not expected, you know, they have to wear the hijab in public. So for Iran, the fact that young women are protesting the hijab wearing in public is a very big deal. And it is not something I have ever seen before. And symbolically, for many Middle Eastern countries and Muslim countries, the hijab has become both a symbol of Islamic purity and also not wearing the hijab has become a symbol of uh, Western modernity. So when we look at it from the perspective of Iranian history, there are many instances where, for example, before the Islamic Revolution in 1979, many Iranian women did not wear the headscarf. And if you look at the media now, there are a lot of, um, we could call Western pundits or political commentators that try to find these images from 1970s where Iranian women are wearing mini skirts and are without a headscarf or just being, you know, very Western and modern. And then they juxtapose it with images today, arguing that this is what Iranian women want. They want to go back to those times. I'm not sure that is what all Iranian women want. I think, like other women elsewhere, what Iranian women want is a, to have a say in how they dress and not have uh, structures of power tell them how to do it. Um, so symbolically, I think it's a very uh, informative and strong and effective protest with a performative bodily element to it. And if you notice the news just yesterday, there was the, um, what's her name, um, Elnaz Rekabi, who's an Iranian rock climber, and she was in Seoul without a headscarf climbing competing in rock climbing and she um, the fact that she chose not to wear the headscarf in a rock climbing competition or any international competition can be taken as a very strong criticism of the Iranian regime although later she apologized and said that her headscarf had fallen off so that shows even an act of defiance if that's what she intended I'm not sure what happened of course and how afraid she was because she was worried about any kind of repercussions from the Iranian regime. And she just, I think, got off the plane an hour ago. So we'll see what happens to her, if anything. Um, but the act that she can just, the fact that she did that is a big, um, is a big um, symbolic challenge to the Iranian authority, I believe. Mm -hmm. One of the things about these this protests is that uh, they seem to have focused very quickly on uh, as as anti-regime protests. That that uh, there there's reports that people are saying down with the dictator and and the like. Uh, so tell us a little something for our listeners who may not be familiar with Iranian politics and Iranian history. Uh, what is the Iranian regime like? Uh, what what is it? How is it structured? Uh, to what extent is or could Iran be considered democratic? To what extent is it autocratic? And how does that fit in with uh, these controversies over uh, things like wearing a hijab? Well, Iran is an interesting case because it is an Islamic theocracy with democratic elements. So even though it has a supreme leader and 
jurists who speak in the name of Islam and define what can or cannot be done in the country. It also has political parties and factions and uh, debates within its own bureaucracy and has elections. So, for example, one of the um, in the previous 2019 elections, there were rumors of the election being rigged and people were protesting on the street saying we want our vote back. So now that kind of a protest can be considered as within the regime. So people were protesting the regime, but they were not seeking the overthrow of the regime. So they were more so seeking reform. But I think these regimes, as you said, have become a call for um, changing the regime very quickly. And I think here one reason for it is the that these protests are led by young people who have not known anything other than the Iranian political regime and the Islamic theocracy and they feel that the regime is not actually giving them the kind of life the normal life they want to live and I think that's the reason why they would like to seek a pol political alternative whether or not that's possible or whether the Iranian authorities will give in to such calls, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but that's something that you know, we'll have to wait and see. There is a rather extensive security apparatus in Iran, right, which, which, is, a, which is a significant barrier to changing the regime. How, what's, the, what's that like, the security arrangements? It's not something I know a lot about, um, but we can probably trace the security arrangements from how these protests are being oppressed and repressed and uh, even manipulated by security officers. So, for example, I know that there were students protesting in a university in Tehran and the police came and told them, we just need you to go to the basement. We want you to be safe in there. And then after that, they just uh, kind of corridored them off and started taking them into custody. So it's not just a matter of strength. It's also a matter of um, not thinking that the protesters' demands are right. But I've also watched some videos and read that in some instances, the uh, leaders of the police and the military are finding it difficult to get the police officers or like lower level soldiers um, fight against protesters. So there are scenes where, you know, there's the leader says you need to go attack or push back or you need to stop the protesters and the police officers are hesitant to act against or like be violent against the protesters. So that shows that there is at least a little bit of a crack, um, like a break off within the oppressive security status. But I'm not sure if it is strong enough that the police officers will join the protesters or the soldiers. But that would be something that would definitely change the dynamics of this protest and what would happen for the Iranian regime. Right. We certainly know from other examples around the world that uh, if, if the security services stay united and support of the regime, the regime is generally secure. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of what happened in Belarus uh, a year or so ago, and uh, uh, Myanmar is another example where 
where the uh, security forces, uh, you know, did hold together and the mm -hmm. protests were essentially crushed. Uh, so, so that remains a possibility here, but you're suggesting maybe the security forces are not uh, completely united in Iran. There, there are some um, hints that maybe they're not that completely united, but other than that, I haven't come across yeah. any more information like the clerics questioning the regime or any kind of break off from the right. higher level political uh, establishment. And that's also something that would be necessary knowing what we know about revolutions and protests and democratic transitions for regime change to occur. We need some groups in the upper level political structure to uh, you know, sign with the, uh, sorry, like, get together with civil society organizers and support them. And that's not something we have uh, seen in Iran yet. The only sign of weakening regime for the Iranian authorities is from conservative Muslims who otherwise support uh, the cleric and the you know hardliners, but have found that these um, the questioning of the headscarf and the treatment of Muslim women also problematic. So that does show a weakening of support from religious groups. And in fact, some of the protests are even happening in traditionally very religious cities, such as home. So that also mm -hmm. shows that this might be a different kind of event than previous ones. Right, and, and it is rather remarkable that the protests seem to be rather widespread and kind of spontaneously emerging from little we can we know mm -hmm. in different parts of the country uh, a lot of the protest is centered around uh, the Kurdish regions of Iran uh, what's that about what's the relationship between uh, say the, the Kurdish ethnic group in Iran and this kind of protest well so as some of our listeners may know, Mahsa Amani was actually Kurdish, even though in Iran, people who are Kurdish are not allowed to use their Kurdish name uh, when they get registered. So that, I think, has allowed at least the initial wave of protests were definitely um, led by Kurdish groups in Kurdish-populated cities, which are generally rural agricultural cities. Because previously, and that's unique because previously most of the protests in Iran, the ones in 2009 or 2019, for example, were, were about the mobilization of the middle class in urban centers. But here the mobilization began in rural cities, more agricultural cities, Kurdish cities. And the, even the slogan, uh, Woman Life Freedom, that has been very prominent among the protests is the refers to a Kurdish slogan, Jinjian Azadi, which has been used by the Kurdish movement's movement for decades. So uh, I think that is important um, to show us, you know, how this Kurdish minority is powerful despite being oppressed by various different governments, including Iran and Turkey. However, uh, I don't think it remains just limited to Kurdish populated areas anymore. It has become a lot more widespread. And we see that protests are now happening in urban centers, in religious cities. Uh, we see that very different kinds of groups are protesting, including young women, 
children, young men, university students, uh, just about on around October 10th, I think, oil workers also went on strike with the slogan, we will destroy everything that we build. So that shows the how protests are quite widespread and are mobilizing through alternative networks and they're not limited to urban centers, which I think is also uh, kind of, you know, is distinctive about these waves of protests in Iran. Okay, could we, I know a lot of Western feminists have been paying a lot of attention to this, uh, these demonstrations, uh, certainly connected to um, the fact that they originated uh, around restrictions on uh, the behavior of women in particularly. Uh, what do you think of, of that? Uh, are are uh, Westerners looking upon this, understanding exactly what is happening here? To what extent is this movement a kind of feminist movement in Iran? Well, let me start from the end. I think it is definitely a feminist movement. Um, or at least it is a movement that has begun with feminists, uh, with feminist demands, even if older women may not be defining themselves as feminists. It is a woman-led movement. And I think that's important. It's also important that in many cases in the Middle East, uh, when we look at the Arab Spring protests, when we look at the Gezi Park protests in Turkey in 2013, we notice that young women and old women always play a very central role in both instigating these protests. Um, and I think that's very important to acknowledge the role of young women. There are some different perspectives in media that I've noticed, in, and people are trying to make sense of what's happening. So one perspective says, for example, well, could we say that Iranian women were influenced by Western feminists? And that I think is problematic because uh, it overlooks the fact that Iranian women have been agents of their own uh, protests and their own resistance for a very long time. But that is not to say that there are no uh, possibilities for transnational solidarity. But in order to create those kinds of connections, we need to be careful not to see, um, not to use Islamophobic language, even though Iranian women are fighting against the Islamic Republic and are fighting for the right to not wear a headscarf. Uh, being a feminist means also uh, supporting the right to wear a headscarf. So for example, uh, Muslim women in France are denied the right to wear a headscarf in public spaces. Uh, so we need to be able to find a balance. And the other part of it is if we are to criticize conservatism in the Middle East, which I think we should do, we should also be willing and ready to criticize the rise of conservatism in the West, including in the United States, because that's the only way we can actually think about feminist struggle in a global fashion. Um, so I think that there is room for transnational solidarity for Western feminists, but it is important to be careful and be respectful of differences and where people are coming from in their own cultural context. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. Uh, we, we look at Iran and, and there's a lot of fascination with the preoccupation with women's hair coverings in Iran, but if we think about it a bit, uh, that happens in our own society, right? Uh, where where uh, Muslim women 
in America wearing hijab have been subject to uh, discrimination and criticism, uh, including members of Congress, right? Absolutely. Um, and also not just Muslim women. Like there are many right. other examples in our society or in American society right now where women are denied making decisions about their own bodies. We can see this from the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So instead of just being fascinated about, oh, how are being women oppressed over there, we should also figure out how can we prevent things like that happening over here. And I think that's an important lesson to be learned uh, from feminism, yeah. Right, and I think the point too is not to exoticize what's happening in Iran as somehow you know, strains just, you know, this foreign country and, uh, and, and not think about how in other parts of the world uh, similar kinds of uh, situations uh, develop. Uh, for a long time now, Iran's been subject to, to economic sanctions uh, uh, as a way of impeding the regime's development of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, to what extent of those economic sanctions perhaps uh, fed into these protests. Is is there any evidence that uh, economic concerns are motivating some of the protests going on? I think economic sanctions definitely provide the context within which these protests occur, although I'm not sure if there is a direct causal relationship. Um, one of the ways in which U.S. and the other Western allies have tried to pressure Iran is by strengthening economic sanctions. For example, former President Trump uh, doubled down on sanctions in order to push Iran on some nuclear issues. And that has been quite harmful for Iranian society. Uh, and let's not forget this was right before the pandemic. And one of the most detrimental outcomes of this doubling down on economic sanctions has been uh, healthcare. Many Iranians don't have access to medicine, and so things like, for example, getting chemotherapy for cancer is almost impossible. So I think that is definitely something that has um, hurt the psyche, the collective psyche of the Iranian people. And then what does the president do is also interested, interesting because his argument is that we need to be strong and we need to try to become economically powerful instead of giving in to the West through sanctions. So he uses the language of economic empowerment and almost kind of a populist rhetoric, which is also, I'm sure, you know, familiar elsewhere to you, uh, and, and tries to get people to focus on you know, agricultural production, but it is not possible to catch up with the West through that you know, dependency theory has already taught us this. So I think that it is definitely creates the context, uh, but I don't think it is just, it's also a little problematic because uh, one of the arguments for economic sanctions is that if we double down on economic sanctions, then Iranian people will be so fed up that they will demand regime change, and this way we won't have to actually get involved. And I think that's a bit of a faulty thinking because in the end what happens is even if Iranian people are resisting or rising up partially due to economic sanctions, they are rising up against a inherently oppressive regime which has killed more than a hundred of its own citizens during the course of these protests. And I'm sure the number could be higher. 
uh, but we don't know exact numbers. So I'm not entirely sure that economic sanctions are to blame or are to be um, celebrated. Uh, they are definitely part of the story, though. Yeah, and, I, and uh, actually the sanctions themselves can be used by the regime uh, saying, well, you're unhappy, there's problems in the economy, but it's not the regime's fault, it's the fault of those Westerners and, and sort of deflect the uh, concerns of the populace with that kind of rhetoric. So s sanctions can work you know, in, 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 in way of, of reinforcing the regime rather than undermining it. We, and we've seen that kind of thing that kind of thing happen, happening. Uh, I'm thinking it's almost analogous to uh, uh, Putin bombing Ukraine, thinking that's going to weaken Ukrainian support uh, for the war. But we know that historically that that kind of thing backfires, and sanctions can backfire too in a in a in a similar way. But it also intrigues me that that uh, at least at the inception. Uh, the protests that have emerged in Iran are not about the economic issues, but about these cultural issues. So that uh, uh, it's that it's that well realm of life that seems to be motivating people to to resist the regime. The fact that the regime is is intervening in uh, people's autonomy to make like choice choices about clothing or or who they you can walk down the street with and where they can go. And, and, and there, kinda... there is actually a famous Iranian singer that took what people posted on social media saying why they are joining the protests and made it into a wonderful song. And in that song, it's just, I'm joining the protest because I would like to hold hands in public, because I would like to be able to kiss in public, because I would like to walk down a street without worrying about what others are thinking about what I'm wearing. And um, this realm of individual freedom is, I think, what's motivating most of the young protesters in Iran. I don't think they are concerned with the economy that much, or at least not at first sight. And at the same time, they are aware that the Iranian regime has already said this. So from the perspective of Iranian political authorities, this at least some of them, this is just a Western ploy. And it's America is making young people protest and nothing, none of this would have happened if uh, Elon Musk hadn't provided the internet connection. And it's just they are um, brainwashed into thinking that, you know, if they protest then they can become like America. And the young people are aware that this is not true, but they also know that the um, Iranian regime will make this argument and is making this argument. So, for example, one of the strongest slogans in these protests is, I don't remember exactly, but it says, our enemy is here. So they don't want to be told that all of this is happening because of America or all of this is happening because of Western powers. This is, I think, something that um, many of our listeners may not know or like people don't who are not from the Middle East or non-Western countries are not aware of. Anything that goes wrong in the country is often attributed to America. So like in Turkey, when the economy is tanking, it's America's fault. When people are protesting on the street asking for democracy, oh, the America is making this happen. And there is an element to truth to that. I don't want to undermine it because if we think about the 1953 coup in Iran, 
where the United States interfered and overthrew a democratically elected um, prime minister due to oil. That, of course, has ruined decades of uh, being able to think about protests in a way that was not always pro-American or anti-American. But I think Iranian people are demanding to move beyond this way of binary thinking. I think that's very significant. Okay. Uh, what about uh, the American uh, response to what's going on in Iran? Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the, the Biden administration's policy. Uh, at present, the Biden administration is trying to revive the nuclear accords that uh, President Trump left. Mm -hmm. uh, nuclear accords negotiated by the Obama administration with the, uh, with the uh, aim of getting uh, Iran not to build a nuclear weapon. Um, and that involved relieving sanctions uh, and then President Trump reversed that and imposed, as you said previously, more sanctions. Uh, but that process has now been negotiated to try to revive those accords. Uh, should the Biden administration go ahead with that? Uh, or is an argument now to say, given the unrest and the regime's uh, repressive response uh, to the protests in Iran, uh, that uh, the United States shouldn't make a deal at this point with the Iranians? I think that's a very difficult question. Um, I think with the protests, the Biden administration seems to try to keep quiet because they don't want to come out as supporting the protesters because that will actually give the Iranian political regime more power if Biden comes out and says, we support this democratic movement or something like that. So in this heat of the moment, I don't think the Biden administration should go forward with signing a treaty or an agreement with Iranian political authorities. Um, and I don't think they will. I think that they will want to see how things calm down or when they calm down in order to um, make a deal with, you know, an authority that they think will be able to keep its word. Another factor here is that the, uh, the Iranian supreme leader, uh, Ali Khamenei, uh, is very old uh, and is evidently supposed to be ill. And so there's certainly, in the, in the near future, there's going to be a need to replace him. Uh, how might that play into the, the, what's going on in Iran now? Uh, this, those kinds of uh, junctures uh, often create a lot of uh, political uh, opportunity uh, and political danger. Uh, what what might occur around uh, changing the supreme leader's position? So Ayatollah Khomeini is, I think, 83 years old, and he has been the supreme leader since 1989. So that's more than three decades. Um, and one of the... Uh, possibilities about who will replace him is supposed to be um, the president of Iran, Ibrahim Rahisi, is always thought about someone who might replace Ayatollah Khomeini. So one of the things, you know, that argument is that the fact that they have increased the military, sorry, the morality and military crackdown right now 
is because Ibrahim Raisi is trying to show to the hardliners that he can be the supreme leader, that he is able from a you know perspective of power and you know having the religious knowledge and will definitely hold the line for the Islamic Republic. And you are right for authoritarian governments or semi-authoritarian governments. Um, whenever a leader who's been in power for number of decades are is ill passes that creates a very critical juncture and we saw this with the Arab Spring. I'm not sure, but I think that if the hardliners win this round of protests, I think we will see the supreme leader uh, be replaced with Ibrahim Rahisi and if not him, someone who is equally a hardliner because I don't see, uh, otherwise the regime will have to rupture and I'm not sure if that's something that will happen in Iran, even with the death of the Supreme Leader, if that were to happen. Yeah. But there is some flexibility here. What's the possibility of the regime going the other way? That is, uh, it, as you say, the demands are, are focused on uh, individual autonomy. Uh, certainly the regime could could relax the, the strictures on that kind of individual behavior. Uh, it, what's the likelihood of that as a possible response to what's happening? Well, the regime definitely has the option to go the path of political reform and create a more liberal political and cultural environment. But from what I understand, for the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, uh, this was one of the mistakes of the Soviet Union. The moment they took the path of, let's do a little bit of reform, the entire system collapsed. So he seems to be fervently against any kind of giving in to demands of civil society. And if there were to be a reformist president uh, or someone that is more moderate, I think that could be possible. But the government doesn't seem to know how to respond effectively to these protests. So initially there was very strict crackdown and denial of we did nothing wrong in Mahsa Amini's death, for example. Later, a couple of weeks later, uh, they came out and said, well, we may have done some things wrong, we're sorry. And then they put up a billboard, for example, in Tehran, 50 Iranian women wearing the headscarf and it's called Land of, Land of Our Women. And the women who were portrayed are famous musicians and athletes and stuff like that. Many of them came out and said, how dare you put my picture up on this billboard? I do not support the regime. I support the protesters. So they had to take it down, which is a very embarrassing moment, I think, for Iranian regime. Uh, so I think they're still trying to figure out a way to show that they are um, respecting young women's demands without giving in to their demand. And I'm not sure if that's going to be possible without a oppressive crackdown, which is maybe what is already happening. Of course, this again, you know, um, this at this point it's about intra-elite negotiation. And that's not something we can really see from, you know, all the way here. Uh, but like, I'm sure that there are debates within the upper levels of the Iranian hmm. bureaucracy about how to approach these protests effectively. Well, they, they certainly have been uh, a, a little flummoxed by the fact that the, the protests have been led by women. Uh, they seem not really sure about how to respond there. And, uh, and could that maybe have, uh, there obviously the crackdowns have been pretty severe. Uh, 
a lot of people have been killed uh, and the like, but, uh, but the fact that women are leading it, could that may have maybe softened the repression or? Uh, um, it doesn't seem to soften it that much. I have read at least, I've read multiple articles about yeah. young women appearing in a video or a, you know, some kind of social media message and then that have gone disappeared. And on top of it, right now, apparently, a lot of children are joining the protests, which is unprecedented in Iran, mm. and which makes it quite challenging to figure out a way to oppress, because, you know, it's young children. So I think that the protesters are definitely coming up with new strategies to test the police officers' uh, morale. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't say that the fact that these are young women has actually softened the government crackdown. If anything, we see in Masa Amini's case that it didn't make a difference. So that's definitely right. not um, not what's happening. I think. Right. Uh, I'm. I'm just wondering, even within the security apparatus itself, whether or not even within their own families there are that that, that there's some division here. Could it be that young women in even the families of, say, mm -hmm. security officers might be involved. I think that's certainly possible. That reminds me of uh, from the Egyptian Revolution, and there were this one video of a young woman who was very involved with the Tahr with the uh, Tahrir Square protests, and it was like a 10-minute clip of her going to protests and then coming home and talking to her parents, who were very fervent supporters of the regime, and showing this generational difference in conflict um, and I th am sure that similar kind of family conversations are happening but I think it's not something that you know we're able to see right now but I think the stories will be written later about uh, how those conversations went down within families of security forces and others that support the regime of course yeah right okay well you know, events are unfolding in Iran. We really can't say what's going to happen here. Uh, it seems to me that what you said is that uh, the, the the likelihood of regime change is probably pretty low uh, from this. Uh, there's not any signs so far that it's that it's cracked. But we'll have to wait and and see. Uh, any final final thoughts for our listeners, uh, Professor Zerchi, before we uh, end our conversation today? Um. I think, you know, our listeners should get informed about what's happening in Iran and because there are so many similarities with protests that have swept through the United States. Just the fact that this is also an example of police violence against a, a minority group and the photos being shared, which has, you know, created all these protests is very, very similar to what has happened in the U.S. two years ago. So I think it's important to follow events elsewhere as we follow events here as well. Okay, well, thanks so much, uh, Professor Gazim Zanzerchi, for your insights on these very interesting uh, developments in Iran. Uh, and thanks so much to our producer, our student producer, Giavea Harris, uh, who has just begun her work as producer for Beyond Your Newsfeed, and she's doing a wonderful job here keeping us uh, going. Uh, thanks also to the Providence Office of Marketing and Communications, and particularly Chris Judge who is, uh, and Joe Carr, who have continued to support the podcast. And thanks to our listeners. Please tell your friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.